In the early 1900s, um, O. Henry, you, whom you may know as the classic uh, American storyteller, uh, published a story called uh, The Gift of the Magi. I don't know how many of you have read it. Uh, it was uh, part of mandatory reading for our high school English class in India. So I believe you Americans must have heard, that uh, heard about that story. It's called The Gift of the Magi. It had nothing to do with magi, actually. It's a metaphor he used. It's a story of a young, poor couple just got married, uh, Jim and Della, and they want to give Christmas gift to each other. They wanted to surprise their spouse. They are in love, and they just got married, but they can't afford. They're basically not just poor. They're broke. They're, they can't afford to buy a gift. So Della realizes that the only way she can raise some money for this gift is to sell her long hair. Actually, her long flowing hair is the crown of her beauty. So I remember the story starts by her counting the money. It was only $1.87. That's all she had. But if she sells this hair, she will get around $20. With which she wants to surprise her husband with a gift. Her husband has a very unique, antique, uh, gold uh, pocket watch. Uh, and so she wanted to buy a platinum chain for her husband's golden watch. Uh, and she, she wanted to surprise him. So uh, she basically sells her hair and buys this platinum chain uh, and waiting for the Christmas evening to come so that she can surprise her husband. Then Jim, on the other hand, he also wanted to surprise uh, his wife. And he also cannot afford something to buy. And he knows uh, her long flowing hair is the most beautiful thing about her. So he wants to buy her a comb. Uh, and he found this tortoise shell jeweled ornate comb, but it is very expensive. He wanted to buy that for her. So he decides to sell or pawn his watch and he buys this comb for her. So Christmas evening, and they surprise each other by their gift. Here, Della, with the platinum chain uh, for the golden watch, he doesn't have it have anymore. And Jim, with a golden, with a with an ornate comb for the hair, Della doesn't have anymore. At that point, that gift meant nothing, but that gift meant everything, right? This is what happens when you switch from the paradigm of law to the paradigm of love. It is not the utility of our work. It is not what we do, but the intention behind our work that is more important to God. That is why the beatitude we saw last week redefined righteousness as a right relationship with God. It is not about doing the right thing, and I hope you remember I said we are not doing right things so that we can become righteous. That is what the religions teach us to do. But we are doing right things because we are already righteous in Christ because Christ is our righteousness. 
It is out of the intimacy with Jesus. It is out of our love for Jesus. Every action that flow out of us, that's how that paradigm shifts. That's the beauty of the gift. That's the value of the gift. It's not the quality of the gift itself. Even the best thing we can offer to God is like a filthy rag. There is no utility for God with your great, amazing work or the money that you put in the basket. But what he looks for, not just the action, but the intention or the desire behind the action. That's why the beatitude we read last week read, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness is not the most important thing in that paragraph, in that beatitude. Those who hunger and thirst. And I said, that's why I believe God will reward you even for your dreams. <laughs> because dreams come from your hunger and thirst. If you, have a, if you have that dream for God, if you have that dream for the kingdom of God, I believe God will reward us. And that's the beauty of that beatitude we saw last week. Today, we are going to the fifth beatitude, Matthew chapter 5, 7. Would you stand with me for the reading of the word? And we are going to read it together. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Blessed are the merciful. Finally, a beatitude I can relate to. <laughs> if, you don't, if you know me personally, you know I'm a very merciful person. I always try to leave big tips in, the restaurant, in restaurants. I recycle. <laughs> I... Uh, <laughs> I always put indicator when I change lanes in the highway, you know. I'm, I'm a very, very considerate, compassionate, kind person. <laughs> At least that's our definition of being merciful, right? A merciful person. And I know we all are and to one extent or the other. So I'm going to give you a word today, a new word. Uh, it's a Hebrew word. Okay, I'm going to show it there. Uh, hopefully it will come up soon. Uh, in Hebrew, it is pronounced something like chasad. chasad. It's a, you know, like an Arabic word. Chasad. So it is in English, in English, it's written as chesed or chesed. I wrote both there because uh, if you are interested, you can Google this, not right now, after, you know, you go home. Because you will see a lot of documents, a lot of videos, a lot of articles about this one word where Jewish rabbis are kind of almost discussing, dialoguing, debating over this word because it's such a complicated, esoteric word which is practically impossible to translate. So we just read it as mercy. But there are different ways of reading it, and there is different connotations and different nuances. Uh, again, this is not a Hebrew lesson, but I want you to be aware of it. 
And uh, out of all these definitions, the one thing I really like to go with is something I learned from India. Okay, so I'm going to give you my own interpretation. It's an example come from India to understand this word hasad. Again, I want you to know that Beatitudes were not written in Hebrew. It's all in you know, Greek and Aramaic in the New Testament. But the Jewish understanding of mercy is shaped by Hebrew vocabulary, right? So Jesus is talking to a Hebrew, a predominantly Jewish audience. So it's important for us to understand the Jewish understanding of mercy. So, you know, as you, most of you know that I'm coming from India, and uh, there are a lot of uh, gurus or yogis, what we call them. Uh, they practice esoteric spiritual disciplines, right? Like you probably might have heard about transcendent meditation, transcendental meditation, TM, which used to be like big back in the 60s and the 70s, and the Beatles generation were got, you know, got into it. Um, so TM was, was, was really great, transcendent meditation, and it's still ripple effects are still happening in our culture. But the highest end of transcendent meditation, which is not really popular here, is called transmigration. Okay? Transmigration is where these Hindu, Hindu yogis, they say, they can literally leave their body you know, in the, uh, in the peak of that transcendence, they can literally live their, leave their physical body and go into somebody else's body and experience their life as they experience and do the things using their body. And when they are done, and they can come back to their body and life goes as normal. This is called transmigration. Now, if you ask me, I, <laughs> I think it's a bunch of baloney, but, uh, <laughs> but, but Indian people know that Westerners will buy anything we sell as long as we couch it in a spiritual packet, right? Uh, so we sell it and you buy it, so <laughs> that's, that's a, circle of, a circle of life, right? Uh, <laughs> or circle of sales. Um, but, but I just wanted to, I'm not talking about transmigration, but that's actually, I want you to get that picture. Uh, we can imagine pictorially, if you imagine, if you leave your body, you know, you can picture that, right? Whether you can do it or not. If I leave my body and transport myself into somebody else's body, and experience life as they experience, experience the pain of their existence, their agony, their suffering. Now then, I am doing hasad. You get it? We always say, oh, you know, I want to put myself in somebody else's shoes. But that's not exactly cut it, because that's, that simply means that I get a different perspective. No, this is actually a, a, an experience that is very physical, emotional, in all level, unless and until I transport myself into the other person's body or their life situation and experience the pain they experience, I don't have hasad. 
And this is actually also some of the words we also flippantly use in English. Uh, for example, the word we say sympathy and empathy, you know, which is all, you know, we send sympathy cards and, and we say we empathize with the situation. They all come from the, these are Greek origin when you study etymology. And uh, so I, sympathy actually means, you know, that two words sin, you know, I sync my phone, right? Which means that my phone and my computer are synced, which means they are together. That's where that word comes from, sin. And pathos, you know, from where we have the word passion, the passion of the Christ. You remember the intense feelings that we have. And it's also the word, the root word comes from suffering. So when you say that you sympathize with somebody, we are actually saying that I experience together their pain, the passion, the pathos they are going through. And when you say empathize with somebody, you are actually in that. You immerse yourself in somebody else's passion. That is actually transmigration. That is actually hazard. You are experiencing, not just seeing things from their, their perspective, experiencing things from their perspective. And that's when we have hasad. So it is the mercy, you know, we almost always use mercy as another word for compassion, uh, you know, which is, which is good, but quite often compassion can be very condescending too, right? I've been in the field of charity and philanthropy long enough to realize that some of the best givers, and you would be really surprised when you get, to get closer to them, and they are doing it out of different reasons, but, but that doesn't, charity doesn't always mean hasad. Compassion doesn't always mean hasad. These are all great things, but unless and until we experience the pain of somebody else. And one of the ways we can do this in the church, if you ask me, one of the best ways we do is, you know when we do intercession, intercessory prayer, you must have heard about intercession, right? So we have a prayer ministry and we do intercede for uh, people and we pray for all you guys and you know, other people. And then sometime I used to wonder, why do I have to intercede for somebody else? Why should I pray for uh, Duane, for example? You know, Duane is a great Christian, a wonderful man, and he's in, living in a close relationship with God. Can he pray to God? And I know he does pray to God. Can God answer, you know, God needs two or three witnesses, a signature or something like What does it mean? Why should I intercede for uh, non-Christians? I understand, but why should we pray for other Christians? That's when I realized that, you know, in intercession, what actually happens when I pray for Duane or pray for somebody else, if you do intercession appropriately, you really do a transmigration at that point. You really do a hasad at that point. Somebody who is in the cancer ward, somebody who is sick, and somebody who's going through bankruptcy, when you pray for them, you actually, automatically, you put yourself in their body and experience their pain from their skin until and unless you do it, you haven't done intercession. See, 
We all grew up in Sunday school, you know, we, we, we learned, you know, we learned that prayer, bless daddy, bless mommy, bless Uncle Bob, and bless Aunt Daisy, which is all wonderful prayer to pray. But at some point, we had to grow up. That should not be just our, our intercession. That, that's a good way to learn intercession. But when we pray for Uncle Bob and Aunt Daisy, we really have to apply said. We really have to go and we really have to feel, experience together their pain. Now when that happens, when that happens, something happens inside you. That intercession changes you. The one who prays will be changed in that process. It is not about the change of the other person, but it will change you. If you truly intercede for other people, true intercessor, you look at them, you can, you can recognize them. They have a very different heart. They have a very different vibe about them. It is not like they go through checklists. Oh, we prayed for Lake Avenue, check. We pray for Hoving Home, check. No, that's not, that's not intercession. And that's when I realized the value of intercession is not just about the person I am praying for, but I myself experience the power of that intercession. That's why Jesus said, Matthew, I want you to pray for others, not for your recommendation so that I can help others. I want you to be changed. So intercession is not just for others, but it is also for you because that's when you really sympathize or empathize or experience Hasad. Now, the ultimate act of Hasad, of experiencing somebody else's passion, is in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 8. 6 to 8. And if you know me, that's my favorite verse in the Bible. It says, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. This is what we call incarnation. Incarnation. God, who existed in the heavenly majesties, although he existed in the form of God, he emptied himself, transmigrated, being in the likeness of man, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Now that is what we call incarnation, kenosis, God emptying himself and coming down as a human being so that he can experience the pain and the agony of human existence. God could have simply sat on a throne and said, you will be saved, you will be saved, I'll give you money, I'll give you job. No, that's, what, that's not what the God of the Bible did. But he incarnated, he came down as a human being. He went through a transmigration. He showed us, he demonstrated the ultimate act of hesed. 
That's what we saw on the cross. So if you see, uh, I hope you'll see that. There is a horizontal way of looking at, at hasad, which is intercession. And the vertical way of looking at hasad, which is the incarnation. These are the two ways mercy or hasad has been manifested in the Bible. These are the two ways God is calling us to do. Matthew chapter 9, 13, Jesus said, now go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This was told right after Matthew the Levite, the tax collector was called and then, you know, he threw a big party for everybody. There was a big party scene. That's exactly what Jesus said. He was not saying about mercy in the sense writing a check or giving the money because they are, they already, they are, it's one of the richest. There's a fabulous party going on. But to them, Jesus said, and while people were kind of discriminating them based on their social status, Jesus said, Let go and learn what this means. I I, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is a direct quote from Hosea 6, 6. Now, what does that mean? Because mercy in itself is a sacrifice. That's what it means. Because mercy in so many ways cannot exist without a sacrifice. Unless we sacrifice who we are, we cannot experience who the other person is or who, what God is thinking for us. So mercy in itself is a sacrifice. The ultimate act of mercy is a sacrifice. When we do intercession, it is kind of an act of sacrifice. When God did that incarnation for our sake, and that was an act of sacrifice. I want, you to, I want to close by saying this. You know, we are all so moved by the pain of the world. We are, particularly Christians, are very compassionate about helping other people and all that. But I want you to know that the act of charity in itself is not what we are called to do. The act of compassionate act is not just what we are called to do. Unless and until what we do is not pointing to the ultimate act of mercy on the cross. All other works of our charity is nothing but vanity and shallow. That's why I was asking Beth that question. How is the ministry of Hoving Home different from a typical ministry? There are a lot of other ministries, uh, uh, you know, catering to people who are in the marginalized part of the society and helping people. These are wonderful people. These are wonderful things. We should continue to support them, do all these good things. But until and unless... We can show them the ultimate act of mercy manifested on the cross. See, that is the true mercy. The most merciful thing you can do to somebody is pointing them to the ultimate act of mercy that was manifested on the cross. That is bigger than writing a check. That is bigger than volunteering in any organizations. And I'm very, very intense about it, and I know, you know, I've, I've managed many charities. I have founded many charities. Quite often in this field, there is a temptation 
to pick and choose, you know. I was uh, running a charity which was on intercultural evangelism, and I talk about different religions, and the temptation was almost always very, very, very high to, to make it a little more non-Christian because then you have access to more funding. You know, I'm talking about different religions, and so people say, yeah, you know, yeah, talk about Christianity and talk about other religions and talk about all of this, you know, talk about evangelism too, but play down that Christianity part a little low. Then you have suddenly access to different other grants. Even some of the Christian charitable funders are even saying that because they don't want to be associated too much Christian. So the temptation in this field is to, is to kind of play down our Christianity part a little low. And now that kind of bothers me, particularly in the Western world, that happens to many charities. And I know this is important, and sometimes we have to do it, and there is no doubt about that, and I always support that. But also we have to evaluate our act of mercy, again, based on the act of hasad that was manifested on the cross. Because Jesus himself came down to this world as a human being, paid the, pay, the price for our sins, and delivered us from the darkness of sin by the act of hasad through inter-incarnation. But now he lives in the heavenly realm, interceding for us. He is interceding for us. See, there you have both the vertical dimension and the horizontal dimension of hasad. Unless, until and unless we reach there, we haven't experienced mercy. And that's my challenge to you. And that's my, uh, that's my encouragement to you as you go out into the world. Let us experience the pain of the world together and point them to the ultimate act of hasad that was manifested on the cross. I'm going to invite the worship team back and I'll... Let's close in prayer. Father God, we come to the foot of the cross and we lift up the cross, not just that white cross on the top of this building, but that cross will be lifted through our worship, through every activity that is happening here, and every charity we are being part of, every ministry will be involved, and our lives too. And we will carry that cross, both that vertic vertical and horizontal part of the cross, both incarnation and both uh, and, and intercession, O oh Lord, so that we will be praying, and we will be interceding for the salvation of the world, and we will be connecting people to the cross, so that, because we know, blessed are the merciful, we, for, we, for that, we will obtain mercy. And Lord, we know that we have already received this. We are paying from the debit card, not credit card. We have already obtained the mercy, the greatest mercy ever dispensed. So, Lord, as we go out, help us to dispense that mercy to the rest of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.